0: Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, sometimes going by Danny these days. On this podcast, as you may know if you've listened before, we have informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. Today, I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Dr. Valerie Small. Dr. Small is the National Program Director for an organization called Trees, Water, and People, a nonprofit working to improve people's lives by helping communities protect, conserve, and manage their natural resources. Dr. Small carried out her Ph.D. research on the homelands of the Crow tribe in Montana, the home of her grandfather. Her work was focused on the invasive shrub tree species of Russian olive, which replaces the native plains cottonwood species of tree in these riverbank ecosystems along the Little Bighorn River. Her findings were published in the 2018 U.S. 4th National Climate Assessment as a case study in Chapter 22, Northern Great Plains. Uh, yeah, I'd like to thank Professor Catherine Hayhoe, for recommending that I speak with Dr. Small. I really appreciate the recommendation. We had a, a very good chat, excellent chat, and I hope that you all enjoy it as well. We're going to get to it very, very soon here. A little bit of trivia. Um, Dr. Small and I both graduated from Colorado State University in Fort Collins uh, in the same year. So we both wrapped up at the same time, which is just a fun coincidence. Uh, I didn't know her there. We didn't know each other there, but uh, you know, just happened to be studying at the same school, same time. Okay, I think that's all I need to mention, so let's go ahead and get into this conversation with Dr. Valerie Small. Here we go.
1: Oh, hello, Valerie. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Good, good to morning. see you. Good to see you.
2: Looks like you're on a good location there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I
0: wish. Well, uh, welcome to the show. It's already recording, but don't worry. There's not really like a formal start or a formal, you know, uh, end to it necessarily. It just, I like to capture some of those initial moments sometimes. So I like to just have it rolling. Um, So let me introduce, uh, so Dr. Small and I, we've already spoken a little bit. So let me introduce Ella Gilbert, our co-host. Ella Mm. does a lot of science outreach and she just recently
1: finished a phd at bass congratulations uh, dr gilbert thanks very much (laughs) it still hasn't (laughs) worn off yet yeah it it takes a while doesn't it
2: i I hear i haven't yeah i have yet to experience the novelty wearing off so
1: (laughs) yeah exactly it's there's also kind of a ptsd kind of thing that happens when you finish depending on how rough your experience was Um, Mm -hmm. but it's it's not for the faint of heart yeah, I
2: submitted it during a pandemic, so I feel like it's all the PTSD is merged into one. Exactly. There you go. I mean, all you going. just
1: got it all over with at one time.
0: Combined multiple stress. Exactly. Is, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. A big kudos to anyone who's doing a PhD right now because that yeah. is very difficult to do it remotely. It's hard enough to do it in the first place, but it's that much harder to have to do it remotely and you know without that kind of regular. In-person in contact, and maybe even more so, it's probably harder without your cohort. Because I don't know about you two, but like the set of people that I went through my PhD with, they were so important. Like I learned so much from them. Oh yeah. And there's still some of my collaborators, and uh, so the, so being kind of disconnected from them would be really. Hard, yeah. From you your, can't cohort.
2: underestimate the importance of office mates. You can turn around to and say, "Hey, have you done this stupid thing before?" Because my computer is doing a stupid thing, and I think it's my fault.
1: <laughs> actually, I finished my whole PhD that way. Really? Yes, I'm one of the few who actually stayed on the reservation and worked at the tribal college until it got time to write. Okay. Oh. Hmm. So my my work was done on the reservation, obviously, while I was working at the college, the tribal college there in Crow Agency, Montana, and um, it was very difficult, but I did have um, uh, some people at the college who had gone through their PhD and who were um, of great support and help uh, during a really rough time of trying to work full time, have a family and finish a PhD and, and get the research finished. Yeah, so, like, like you said, not for the faint of heart. It, it wasn't at all. It, and I, I do think I missed that part of having the cohorts um, mm. in in the department. Um, but, you know, my journey was a very interesting one, to say the least. Oh, I bet.
0: <laughs> I wonder if you have any thoughts on completing a PhD remotely, you know, what, what helped keep you going? How did you kind of keep your, keep that momentum going? And, um, and I'm just imagining, cause there will be people listening who are doing that right now and trying to wrap up theirs, you know, in, in the middle of remote working in the pandemic. And well, I imagine you've thought about that some,
1: you know, I, I do think that it's important to remember uh, that a PhD is just one moment in time that this document is not, Everything that you have ever studied or need to study to present in a paper form. And that nothing is going to be impeccably perfect. That there's always going to be, you know, more work. And that's the essence of science, is it not? That we continue to build upon our knowledge base um, from others. And, and that's how we advance our knowledge in the science world. And So I think maybe not being so hard on oneself to have these expectations that this has to be perfect. And it has to include all of these things. Sometimes we get to the point where we go down the rabbit hole, or at least I caught myself doing that in more research where I needed to read more papers, I needed to read this paper, I needed to do this, when in fact, you know, when it came down to it, it had to actually be narrowed down and focused um, in order to get finished um, because otherwise you don't finish. And I think that's where a lot of people end up not finishing is because they take it all on and hmm. think that it has to be perfect and everything has to be included. Um, for me, I what did, uh... supported supported me was, was the cultural component of it and you know, being on the reservation and being able to um, participate in, you know, my husband's a Sundancer and, you know, a lot of my uh, work has been influenced by sacred ceremony of the Sundance and uh, it, it really drove my whole um, idea of behind the research. Um, and, and the other idea was that um, within reservation boundaries on these checkerboard ownership type, of reservations here in the US, which just means that during the Dawes Act and the Homestead Act that followed that, there were there was land that was opened up within reservation boundaries. So that you have a mix of, of fee patent or, or non-indigenous people living within the reservation boundaries. So non-indigenous people. And 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 these land ownership types and classes are part of what my work looked at relative to the spread uh, of this particular invasive species. And also what has its displacing our sacred ceremonial tree, which is the plains cottonwood or the populist of Toides. And so what my whole thing really, what drove me was an effort to build a case, if you will, for changing policy at the national federal level. To indicate that um, all lands within reservation boundaries, regardless of ownership, um, would essentially be driven, those decisions are driven by the tribe and not by just those. It's hard to get rid of an invasive species that your non-Indigenous neighbor wants to plant. And so, yeah, for, um, for that reason and to honor the sacred ceremonial tree that I did interviews with. Elders and knowledge holders on the reservation to determine whether it was becoming more difficult to harvest and find specific size structures of these plants, these trees, um, utilized for the sacred ceremony dance, and and in fact, compared to 25 years ago, and in fact, that's exactly what was happening. Um, but it was it's also a cascading effect, so that really the absence of and reduction of plains cottonwood and uh, the, their population reduction in size, um, their lambda essentially really was serving as sort of a canary in a coal mine, because there are other species that are equally important culturally, and in ecosystem wise, that are also likewise becoming more difficult to find.
0: That's really fascinating. I want to dig into so much of that, and kind of s- slow down and and um, get into a little bit more detail. And, you know, I guess we sometimes talk about people's pathway a little bit later on into the podcast. But it's it's so I'm struck by how intimately you know intertwined you know your pathway is with the specific science that you ended up doing. And it's not necessarily that same way for everyone. You know, a lot of us pick a topic because it sounds interesting. But yours has such a personal and cultural connection that I'm I'm really interested in that. Um, so the maybe what we could do could you walk us through a little bit. You know uh, of how you ended up. I mean, you, you just did, but I, I kind of I guess I want more more detail because uh, it's it's interesting. Can you walk us through a little bit how you came to you know work on your PhD out at Colorado State and what um, what helped you kind of narrow in on that particular topic? I mean, you gave us a quick summary there, but I guess so. You you um were you born on uh, like tribal land and did you grow up
1: on a, in a, no, can we we just, I I didn't, Uh, my father, my father, I'm a Navy brat. My father was in the Navy and uh, my grandfather who is cruel left the reservation to work in the shipyards during the war, the towards Mm -hmm. the end of the the second world war, uh, as did many uh, indigenous men trying to find work. And uh, my mother uh, therefore kind of spent more of her formative years in Seattle and met my father who was, in the Navy and from Illinois um, originally and was on leave. So this is, I sort of, you know, was born, you know, not in Illinois or or Montana where my mother was born. Um, And my grandfather was born on the reservation. And so I was not raised on the reservation, but knew that we were Crow and that we had land, um, we have mineral rights to land, Mm. that my grandfather uh, as an original allottee of the Apsalika Nation um, had and was um, allotted. And so that interest only grew as I got older and then into my um, master's program, working on sort of an ecophysiology project up in the Northwoods, which was beautiful. Um, so by what's, the way, uh,
0: what's what's the, sorry, what's ecophysiology? What's that area?
1: it it was really looking at i sort of did a a leaf uh clipping experiment on one of the few shrubs that i actually grow in the um understory of the north woods and derkus palustris uh, is what it's called Mm. leatherwood and um there is also an an indigenous connection to that species and um, what i did was look at doing a clipping and, and what i was interested in at the time was this translocation of uh, photosynthates from one uh, branch to another as they, you know, does one branch come to the rescue of another? If it's reduced, its foliation is reduced by a leaf miner that um, often uh, plagued this species. And also looking at this within uh, a larger aspect of light um, because I worked in, you know, you know, cult, these, these managed forest systems. So the federal managed forest systems um, had different forest management types. And so looking at also light and the impact um, that it might have on not just sort of survival, but more down to looking at seed production. So later on doing, you know, collecting those seeds that were produced and weighing those and I did some, you know, soil moisture content as well. Um, and so I looked at light and soil moisture and soil content and doing this leaf study and then looking at the seeds um, and that were produced to see if there was any translocation of that. And so it was, uh, you know, it was at the time uh, maternal effects impacts were extremely interesting at that time when I was going through it. But it was always a connection to my, you know, grandfather's family that lived on the reservation still, and and a and a really a desire for me to want to meet my family. And twenty years ago, I called my auntie who worked at the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Crow Agency, and said, "I want to come meet you." And she rolled out the red carpet, and the rest is history. So I finished oh. my master's, <laughs> and and I had started a PhD program elsewhere. And uh, didn't feel I got the support I needed to be able to do that, and met uh, someone in Montana who recommended Colorado State University. And the rest of they say is history. And so, so, the, um,
0: so you mentioned the reservation is, is in Montana, right? So, that's, yes,
1: it, yes, you, yeah, it, yeah. It's South Central, Montana, it's south of Billings, um, and just north of Sheridan as you come in on I 90.
0: Okay. I'm really happy to hear they rolled out the red carpet for you. Um, My family, means, I got to know, meet
1: a lot of family members. So
0: it was oh, that's really, really nice. What was that like? Uh, well, what just, you get to meet this, your big extended
1: family and. Um, it, it was, it, it's so, you know, lifts your soul and it, and it sort of helps you to, to understand who you are from your family's history hmm. um, from that perspective. in Um, you know, it's also, it was empowering, but it was also, you know, um, looking at the history of how indigenous tribes have been treated here in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, I think also I had already started, you know, understanding that 10 years prior. And so then learning the actual history of Kroll and how they came to be where they are and the reservation period and what happened with the land dispossession. And, and so, you know, it was, it was enlightening and it was also empowering to have um, family who supported me to do this, this work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so you felt that you, you had that support and someone recommended based on your interest and based on the masters you had done before they recommended Colorado state program down there. For your PhD?
1: They did. They did, yeah. and I was already interested in invasive species at the time, um, and riparian systems because initially I wanted to work in wetlands um, and riparian systems, and so continued that and was interested in this invasive species, Russian olive, and um, how when I got on, you know, went to visit the reservation, and then eventually moved there, how amazing it was, and not in a good way of the um, presence of Russian olive, just groves of it in pasture lands along the Little Bighorn River, which is, you know, it's a historical river. This is where the Battle of the Little Bighorn happened, you know, with that guy named Custer, so uh, who lost. <laughs> and,
0: yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's when you say that, the, so you're mentioning this invasive species was was present and you said kind of, it's amazing in terms of the, the extent of it. So this was the result of um, you know, the, the species being planted kind of on on the boundaries of the reservation and even somewhat into the reservation based on the it act you told planted, us about. Purpose,
1: yeah, it was purposely planted there during the Indian um, Civilian Conservation Corps, in, hmm. the Indian Emergency Civilian Conservation Corps post uh, Dust Bowl era so that they could provide uh, a species that would grow quickly, provide bank stabilization, and reduce soil loss. Mm-hmm. And not thinking that, um, although the people that I interviewed, um, uh, you know, um, our Honorable Dr. Barney Old Coyote, his father had told him not to plant that, that they were planting it along the Little Bighorn and Bighorn River um, and in their streams systems. And saying not to plant that because it's it's like weed it's it's gonna you know get out of control and that's exactly you know what happened mm. and I think you know also diversion of the rivers both on the Bighorn with the um, you know Bighorn Canyon development in the 60s the building of the Yellowtail Dam on the Bighorn uh, regulation uh, along the Little Bighorn which started in the 1800s um, for diversion. For agricultural purposes, which I might add, really was more for those non-indigenous people who were buying up large parcels from native people um, who couldn't make a run of their own parcels because they were too small. So it's a cascading effect of um, river regulation and planting of this species, you know, in the in the late 30s, and uh, a lag time effect of these invasive species that were. You know, combined with now climate change um, and having a huge impact on the population of our, um, you know, populous deltoides, our plains cottonwoods, um, among other species that are, um, you know, these are primary production types of species that grow in these riparian systems that are most productive systems in the West, the arid West.
0: Is that sorry? I'm not I'm not familiar with that term. The that kind of so you said it's just very productive. That that's what,
1: the yeah, term it, you mentioned there. Well, it's um it's the primary uh, species, hardwood species that grows. It's it it's a high light colonized. You know, it, it requires high light. It grows quickly. Cottonwoods in other parts mm. of the country. Probably people thinking, what's wrong? Why can't you grow cottonwoods? Because they grow very well in other places but in the semi-arid west along riparian systems um, these are the most productive systems ecosystems in the semi-arid west and you know cottonwood is the primary species that grows along these systems along with other hardwoods and um, provide important shade and uh, you know also don't exude uh, these phytochemicals that the invasive species Russian olive does, along with we also have tamarisk, which is an invasive species that is probably more prevalent in the southwest. So, but it does grow here, and um, so it does have an impact on you know the ability of taking sort of displacing these highlight um, species that require highlight to grow in along seed, you know, these. Moist um, banks within river systems, along river systems, within sand banks, within you know gravel bars, um, and so that's the purpose uh, behind that species is really driving that ecosystem as okay. a healthy ecosystem.
0: Right. Yeah. You mentioned climate change. Can we spend a few minutes talking about about that? Because I was thinking that. Um, when you study a specific region like that that you must have a very local and interesting picture of you know climate change impacts both the ones that are already here and the ones that are you know potentially that are likely to come so what is the relevance of climate change for the specific areas that you study and the specific species that you study this is obviously a huge topic i don't expect we're not going to cover all of it right but just hearing a bit from you would be really interesting
1: well, I, I think in my work, that I, my research, I really wanted to focus on the spread of the invasive species. And, and the purpose behind that is to look at how will climate change in 10 years out from the work, how will that impact the distribution of this invasive species based on where it is now. So utilizing a model called MaxN or maximum entropy, sort of uh, in a habitat prediction modeling tool and adding 22 climate variables to be able to determine based on where it is now, where will it spread in the future. And the reason is that, you know, often we don't have enough funds really to address a whole entire river system. But you can focus on those areas where you want to remove those trees that may be feeding because the seeds do float. These um, seeds of, you know, elangus and gustafolia and um, so, and also, they're pretty prevalent in pasture systems, which are not good for cattle. Uh, that is often, you know, plagued uh, by these large thorns that aren't good for horses and for cattle. And so, the the interest behind that was to, you know, have a plan or start developing a, a plan that's iterative and that can be managed. And also, I think part of what drove that was having these unprecedented floods, these fifty-year floods back to back, in uh, on the reservation that caused significant damage, um, and wanting to get people thinking about that these impacts of climate change were al- are already happening, mm-hmm. and many of the elders already knew that. You can see that um, because they're you know they're intimately tied to. The land and 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 can see um based on you know their uh their observations i mean science is based on observation but indigenous people have been doing this for thousands thousands of years yes yes
2: yeah i was interested in that do you think that that sort of um perspective has given you a different? I guess a different perspective in the way that you've done your research has kind of being embedded in the indigenous community, given you a different method. Have you gone about things in a different way, having that knowledge and that experience from the elders that you mentioned and the people who live in the environment that, you know, people often come and study an area without really living in it or experiencing it. But I wonder if that gave you a different frame of mind.
1: Yes, and I think fortunately, due to some work from some of my Indigenous colleagues, that is changing. Uh, no longer is it allowed to be, have scientists simply to come in uh, to do a research project and leave. There has to be some benefit to the community, some important issue to address that the tribe drives the questions um, and the concerns that are important culturally uh, to the tribe. Uh, Dr. Dominique W. chavez here at CSU is, um, did her work ex- on that exactly to look at the fact that about 85 to 90% of any research done within reservations is extractive. It's, it's exploitive. And so I'm grateful to see that change. And I think being within the community itself, it allowed, you know, allows me to Um, understand the sacredness and connectedness of uh, all these things, and that the importance of communicating to the community is to include our youth into the science and to try to, through our tribal college, encourage our youth to study um, in the sciences, but to bring with that their culture and to to always keep that centered when you're doing any research. And for me, that was sort of the key is walking that line and understanding that, um, this is an important knowledge system, um, that we know and are, you know, it's difficult to, you know, piece that out. It's, it's a different way of knowing and difficult to even explain. And, um, so I, I, I think for me, it was always honoring the sacredness of all these things. And that's a belief system that I carried, but also no. trying to make sure that I honored sacred knowledges and did not share that in my work, um, that I um, followed protocol when it came to interviewing, you know, anyone who was male because... Uh, my husband would have to ask them on on my behalf to talk with them first and so just trying to make sure that i honored the clan system way in our our cultural way and how to address this but i I really also was very fortunate to to have some uh, young students at the tribal college work on some of my uh, this research with me and also some members of the tribe who worked uh, with the tribal natural resource department and um, being able, what I essentially did was in my mapping program for mapping where these species are, these invasive species, that was only, um, that was private. So I didn't share that with this group. Um, I actually worked with through CSU through the natural resource ecology lab. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it wasn't allowed. So I think because, you know, unless you're tribal or unless you recognize that there are just some things that you need to honor and respect um, and also to approach it from the tribal perspective of what they feel is important to focus on, that these these re- this research, any science, needs to have some benefit to offer the tribe, and for me, it was great because these youth had their pictures in the paper showing them working on these invasive species, this invasive species, Um, and so what happened is the tribe immediately then started to work on, you know, when they dredged these riparian floodplain ditches to be cognizant of removing uh, some of these invasive species. So it spurs on you know, action from within the community because it's coming from our youth that are ambassadors that um, that will speak to the community as a whole about the importance of this, why it matters, because there's a whole lot of other things that are happening, you know, lack of housing and, and we're, you know, in essentially food deserts and a lack of economic opportunity. And so, um, I, you know, poor health outcomes all of these things are prevalent. And so sometimes take, obviously uh, they're ahead of talking about natural resource, ecosystem restoration projects. Um, But when you try to tie it to the fact that this is directly tied to the health of the people, then you're able to reach the community and the community then comes together to work on this. And it's it's kind of wonderful to, to see that happening all over within tribal community, especially on food sovereignty.
0: It's really interesting that, I mean, you highlighted something for me, an, an interesting kind of contrast between the practice that you're talking about and some of the kind of dominant modes of science that, that exists. So, for example, there's a big large-scale movement right now to have science be as as open source as possible, you know, all the yes. data, all the methods all the papers, everything. Yes. And the idea was to like lower the effort barriers.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so I'm not here to like, you know, to like figure everything out, but I just think that contrast is really interesting that you're saying that like, uh, well, wait, there might be, you can't ask the question like, well, who, who benefits from that full openness and are there situations in which it makes more sense to hold back the data, to hold back the results, to, you know, to keep it for a particular community. And I think it's an interesting, um, if I've understood what you're saying correctly, because I think if I've understood you right, it's an interesting counterexample of, well, maybe maybe full open source everything isn't appropriate in every circumstance. Is that fair to say? Or have, have I understood what you're saying correctly?
1: Yes. I mean, in my case, you know, I didn't want anybody on the outside to know where these species were that I mapped uh, along the Bighorn and Little Bighorn River system. I didn't want that to be accessible until the tribe had the opportunity to address it. And so even though it was published, as you said, in the NCA 4 for another great plains as a case study um, on climate uh, mapping this, these species and looking at the, the predictions of spread um, due to climate change variables. It was published in 2018, November 29th, 20, you know, it was on the yeah. Black Friday on purpose, um, oh. <laughs> published uh, the NCA4, um, but it was, you know, eight years afterwards or, nine, you know, seven years after. So that that information was already there and, it, and it's probably already changed in terms of how the tribe a- approached their management of the invasive species and and also, it spurred on the planting of buffer zones along the river system of cottonwood trees. So, you know, it 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 um, it was further on. But what you're, what I'm trying to say is that it it kind of depends because I think um, anyone um, who is doing this work uh, within reservations um, on, on any culture has to make sure that they honor protocol um, because not everything is going to be appropriate to share Mm, and they don't have to share their traditional knowledges with you Mm. or with anyone Mm. Um, as and so um it needs to be determined up front what knowledges um will be shared within the community versus what's going to be published in a paper and available to the masses for science
0: that makes me think about um so a couple of episodes ago i spoke with simon donner who so he has a longstanding research program uh, on the island of uh, Kirbas. I think I'm saying that right. And one of the things that he taught me about, and I was so glad to learn about this from him, and I felt like it made sense, it made a lot of sense to, to me, is that, um, so the phrase he used was was climate determinism. And what he was talking about was the tendency of the kind of I'm going to overgeneralize, but like the Western scientific narrative to come into an indigenous community and not necessarily intentionally, but to paint a narrative of like, Oh, we, we should help them. We should come in and help them. We should come in and fix things because things are bad. And one of the important things that he pointed out is he said, well, you have to be really careful because that kind of narrative robs, it robs indigenous communities of that of their own agency and of their own ability to, you know, determine how they want to see things managed. So it sounds like what you're talking about is, is sensitive to that possibility. It's sensitive to that um, narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. Could could you speak to that some, does that resonate at all?
1: It does. Uh, In fact, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier about Dr. Dominique Chavez's paper, it, it speaks to the fact that, as you said, um, from the outside world, whether it's anthropologists or scientists, look, looking from the outside into on tribal communities and saying, oh gosh, we need to go rescue them. Um, indigenous people have very bright people um, who have you know, PhDs who have master's degrees, who are educated and are very capable of addressing their own issues what is often missing is their narrative about how they want to approach and solve their issues or what their priorities are. And that comes from within and not from without. So, you know, I I applaud people for wanting to help, but you know, I think, as you said, they unknowingly just want to come in and try to fix things. And that's the wrong approach completely what the approach should be is I have this type of data and if it's interesting or if it's a question that helps further uh, build the community in some way, shape or form, then, you know, here's what I have to offer. I mean, you know, you work from what you know and what you're able to do and not pretend that you're going to be speaking on their behalf. So uh, I would say that there's a lot of indigenous people who are already doing their own work. And, and this is important. We, we want to do our own stuff. We do our own work. We do our own publications. Yeah. Um, we, we speak from our own voices and what I see happening is more and more um, science is in, is, is bringing in indigenous voices to speak for themselves and not having non indigenous voices speak for them. Um, and, hmm. and as you said, They are, you know, they can speak well for themselves and are perfectly capable of addressing their own issues and and continue to do that in unprecedented ways that they are really held back from being a captured people within a reservation system and having the Bureau of Indian Affairs as their agent and uh, not having enough control over their own land to be able to do what they like to do with their land in any development, whether it's agriculture or building a house, you know, uh, I can tell you stories about people who wait seven years to get permission to build a home on the reservation on indigenous land. So, or to Hmm. to get an agricultural uh, ranch going. So it is this, you know, red tape policy issue that I was trying to address initially in my work was to try to give indigenous tribes um, a greater voice over their own land and resources um, within reservation boundaries. And, you know, to sort of remove that hampered uh, red tape that the Bureau of Indian Affairs wraps itself around. And we're so excited that Deb Holland has been, you know, a member of the Laguna Pueblo has been nominated to serve as a department of interior first indigenous person to run it and and an indigenous woman at that Hmm. so we're you know we're seeing really good changes moving in the right direction um and hopefully we will see you know changes within reservations to be able to build healthy communities with um you know within their economies to Hmm. Uh, you know, and that's what I do now. Is working at Trees, Water, and People. Um, we try to help uh, facilitate the funding so that tribes can implement these on the ground restoration projects of post burn scar sites, particularly in the Southwest, where you have had because of climate change an increase in fire frequency, intensity, and um, reducing these species t- to beyond the point where they're be able to, to successfully um, restore themselves.
0: Did you say you're one of the founders of Trees, Water, and
1: People? Oh, gosh, right? no, yeah? no, 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 no. you're not one of the founders. I, okay. <laughs> no, I started working there two years ago and as their national program director for U.S. Uh, travel lands. And, uh, you know, so I, my, my career path didn't take a, a traditional mm-hmm. um, way uh, into this, more of a non-traditional working sort of with North Central Climate Science Center, um, a little bit. and doing some work for them and also working at University of Arizona for the Native Nations Climate Adaptation Program that is no longer there. But um, taking this position two years ago with Trees, Water and People, a nonprofit out of uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, that's been here for 22 years and is really, we work both at the international and national level. Uh, so we work in the Americas in Guatemala and Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua um, in communities. And what we try to do is to help uh, build communities from within, focusing on helping them find the money. We we have great private donors and foundations and grants to help bring funding to implement restoration projects, to uh, bring seedlings in and get them planted. And we encourage uh, the youth and elders that come together to plant these seedlings to foster that transfer of intergenerational knowledge these are their projects not ours we just get the funding and try to help them find the best partners that will help them implement their priorities will they lead develop and design their own restoration projects and we focus a lot this year on food sovereignty what how do you of- find
2: the transition from the kind of Small academics, scale world
1: yeah. and academia to a nonprofit. To a nonprofit. Oh, that's, that's
0: a great question.
1: Excellent <laughs> question, and I I think part of my frustration in academics was that I really wanted an applied component to my work, and applied in seeing that um, a lot of funding for tribes came through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, or and Indian Health Services, and other um, you know ways of funding. In, and that came only for planning for climate change, um, but not for the on-the-ground projects. So, you know, the funding isn't there, really. And I wanted that to be able to foster real on-the-ground implementation to help tribes to prepare for climate change now. And, you know, those climate science uh, our climate vulnerability assessments that I was working on at U of a were great but where's the money going to come from to implement that those on the ground projects yeah which is and the so, most important part right <laughs> exactly so for me it, it's been it's been wonderful. I love what I do. I love being able to just facilitate these projects to to get the funding in place so that these you know tribes, and pueblos in the southwest can actually implement their own projects on the ground, whether it's, you know, planting seedlings or looking at particular species that are culturally significant for ceremony uh, to be planted, like Douglas fir or you know, plains cottonwood or chokecherry and and buffalo berry, which we implemented this year into our seed mix so that they could plant those um, so they could start restoring in these degraded ecosystems these important traditional food sources so they can improve their health outcomes so they could build their local economies around these important natural resources that are traditionally used or were traditionally foods you know it's hard to break away from mcdonald's which has impacted you know type 2 diabetes is rampant and heart diseases is, is disproportionately higher in indigenous communities because of the diets that started during the reservation era where they were thrown the sacks of flour. And you know, now, you know, fry bread honestly is not a traditional food as much as we love it. It's not a traditional food. It was born from, you know, the, the reservation era. So, um, so helping to empower tribes to be able to do their own projects on the ground and this bring sounds- youth together with the elders
2: it sounds like you're kind of tackling a lot more than just one issue in your current work, whereas I guess it is. academia encourages you to focus on one thing it rather does. than the whole system right. thinking holistically.
1: Right. So instead yeah. of writing a document and doing research to contribute to that document for them uh, to determine what their priority should be in vulnerability assessments, uh, now instead being able to implement those, you know, climate change plans that tribes have developed and, and, and that is satisfying in and of itself. And also always being aware, uh, along with uh, my national coordinator, James Calabasa, who is um, a member of the Santo Domingo Pueblo and grew up there was raised there um, and graduated from CSU. Um, And so he and I, along with our great ED who is Sebastian Africano who has been with uh, Trees Water and People for 15 years um, are all very cognizant about uh, indige- the indigenizing of this approach that I brought to the table when I came in and have built into the program, so that we honor tribal, um, all tribal niche nation- as nations. They are sovereign nations. They determine their own set of priorities, not us.
0: Yeah, uh, this this really well said. I I really part of what I wanted to talk about and what you made me think of is, you know, you've described really beautifully the uh, move towards having tribal nations kind of have a bigger say in terms of what happens in those nations, how it's managed. I think there's also a really potentially powerful opportunity for the approaches in those tribal communities to inform the larger scale approach, like what, you know, the planet does, like what we do as a exactly. whole, as a whole civilization, as a whole, you know, species that we, right. we respond to climate change. And exactly. I'm thinking about, uh, I talked to Eric holfaus uh, a while ago, mm-hmm. you know, he has a new, this, this book out about imagining what the future earth will look like. Right. And um, I won't try to summarize it perfectly or anything, but I just, one of the themes in that book was that was, was moving away from an economic system that, you know, is very short term and very focused on, you know, extracting resources and, you know, turning them into products and selling them. And that moves more towards uh, one phrase of, of his, I think it was his, it was either him or somebody that he quoted said something about, well, we need to move towards a system where we are in a, a web of uh, mutual responsibility and mutual care, where there's a genuine, recognition that, um, you know, both as people, like the system is all connected, right? Everything is connected to everything else. Yeah. And it doesn't really make that much sense to only isolate, to try to isolate one part of it, to try to extract wealth from one part of it, or to try to use one part of it, or to even even just understand one part of it, which is sort of, you know, Ella, what you were talking about is that in, in academia, we still have this pretty narrow view often of let's just focus on one thing. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could speak to, you know, what is, what in the kind of um, tribal approach, what do you think we can learn from that in terms of the big scale response to climate change and to other environmental issues?
1: Well, you know, I don't speak for, you know, all tribes or any tribe in particular, but I can tell you from my experience that um, essentially You know, they do look within, they live within a reservation boundary. So what they're doing now is hopefully getting more cooperation from, you know, people like the Park Service and the Forest Service um, and these other federal and state local land agencies to work together so that they can approach these problems from both, you know, landscape scale as well as community scale. And... I think that that is starting to happen uh, a little bit better, um, and I I think that um, they're also understanding that a lot of this land, even if the tribe isn't really currently that's not recognized as tribal land to a specific tribe, you know the their ancestral lands. <laughs> so any land that you are standing on is traditional ancestral, you know, indigenous land, um, and so. Uh, being cognizant of that, I think, is, is really helping a lot of college and universities are now recognizing they need not just a land acknowledgement, but they need to also actively uh, engage on that. So that there's a responsibility to stating I uh, acknowledge this these lands within um, Fort Collins are uh, the traditional ancestral lands of the Ute Cheyenne and Arapaho. There's a responsibility to that acknowledgement. Uh, land acknowledgement that, you know, there's something that needs to get given back. And um, so bringing the indigenous voice in and being able to address it from a landscape scale, I think is important. And I think tribes already know that and recognize that, but they also have to come at it from their own perspective on how they want to approach uh, resolving their, their these, these issues. And they recognize that this is a global issue. I mean, it's not as though they don't recognize this, um, but I do think that they also have to recognize that they live within a community, um, and you know, and 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 are trying to get back to our ancestral teachings and and listening to our elders on how to care for the land, restore it, um, and getting back to a little bit more of traditional ideas of how to and traditional practices. So that what we're trying to do is communicate that to the outside world as well on, you know, they're looking now at indigenous approaches to fire management. You know, gee, we've been doing this for a long time. Um, And so I think, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question right, but I think that is that, that's sort of a perspective that, you know, that I hate to go back to that cliche, but to think globally and act locally is still important because these communities still are are struggling and are in poverty, and so let's be realistic about this. That's there's going to need to be funding to be able to address these issues that are right. you know that 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 run across the scale, and so um, I, I I do think that they're very much aware of of you know the overall picture. Yeah, And I think in, in going back to traditional teachings and thinkings of ways of land management and and reducing the, the impact of invasive species, of, of recognizing um, how to best manage their agriculture um, and, you know, uh, recognizing they need to maybe go back to, you know, bison management is very, very um, popular now and it's expanding in many communities out here in the West, tribes are getting their own bison herds and, you know, uh, in, improving health outcomes for communities and improving their economic uh, opportunities as well. So um, mm-hmm. I, I do think it's it, everything is connected. And in order to address all these issues that you're talking about at a global scale, we need to support and empower local communities to do those things.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point, and part of what that made me think of. I'm not a policy expert, so this is a this is a hole in my knowledge. But I do know that one of the components of the Paris Climate Agreement, which the U.S. is now applied to rejoin. Yay. Hooray! Oh my
1: gosh. I'm, yes, so, it's, it's wonderful.
0: I'm so I was so happy to to see that. So um, I do know one component of that agreement had to do with finance flows, and you know I I don't know. I, I don't know if any of us really here know anything about that. I don't want to presume or not presume, but that when you talked about, you know, where's the money going to come from, that's what my mind went to is that, well, I know on the big international scale, there has been a recognition of, yeah, we have to put our money where where our mouth is. Like we have to shift investments, you know, stop investing in fossil fuel, um, invest in, you know, of course, green energy, but I think what you're saying is really, is really important part of that of, that it can't just be a large-scale shift that we also have to invest in local communities, just like you're saying.
1: Well, I think um, if you look back at this past year of COVID, what happened in our lockdown here in the States, I don't know about you, but here in the States, uh, the lockdown had a a, a drastic impact on the distribution of goods and services, Mm -hmm. particularly goods in grocery stores. So there was a lack of toilet paper and... A lot of dairy and meats, very difficult. And tribes already live uh, within what we call food deserts. There are very few grocery stores that are accessible. Yep. And I think even rural communities uh, struggled. So if you think about that, maybe we should be thinking about it on a, on a local community scale, where our food comes from, where our products come mm-hmm. from, yeah. and start thinking of it in those terms so that we can start empowering local communities to you know grow their own foods let's have gardens again you know um let's let's have community urban spaces and gardens that um we can then grow healthy foods so you're addressing poverty you're addressing uh food insecurities um and hunger uh for those less fortunate by doing these things at a local scale
0: yeah absolutely did you have any thoughts ella it looked like you were (laughs) Thinking about something new. <laughs> no, I just think
2: okay. it's really always well, two things. <laughs> I guess like devolving the, the responsibility and devolving the kind of decision making is so vital to take that responsibility and kind of abstraction from the global policy scale mm-hmm. down to the community scale is yes. difficult, but so necessary because it's such a paralyzingly gigantic problem that to consider it just on the very top level is really, really overwhelming and feels like impossible. You can't
1: grasp it. Exactly. Exactly.
2: So to actually go, okay, well, if we all as communities or, you know, I mean, even countries is far too big a scale. So if you all as communities or individuals take a small chunk of the responsibility and organize something on that scale, it it seems much more manageable and like it would be an achievable uh, thing to do. And I guess the other thing was, I thought it was really fascinating. You've talked quite a lot about the intersection between those, those issues. So talking about food sovereignty and tackling hunger as well as the degradation of the environment and climate. I think that's so, so vital because so often we think about climate as being, I don't know, just an environmental issue, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? And to tackle it as just, in quotes, an environmental Mm -hmm. issue is to miss a huge part of it and to miss the point and also to miss huge amounts of opportunity because if you think about something in a big picture, holistic way, you're much more likely to actually... Solve the underlying issues in a way that everybody can participate in and everybody can benefit from. Absolutely. That Absolutely. wasn't really a question. That was a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, <that's> fine. <laughs> just that's a comment fine. on. Yeah, that's yeah. really amazing that's, what you're doing. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's important, I think, to it's, It is a different model. It is, uh, I agree, uh, that it is a model that we um, embrace and support in Guatemala with a group called Utsje. Partners there, and um, it is quite different, I think, than what what others might think is is appropriate in terms of how you address these important issues of poverty, food insecurity, and hunger. Um, Is you know what we do is sort of try to build the natural resources, the economic opportunities, and improving food, um, or improving food security. Um, and and decreasing poverty and um, hunger through natural resources. Because that's an indigenous view is that our food and water are who we are. They are a part of us. We are a part of them. And um, what happens on the land affects our water and impacts the water quality and our health. And so what we you know, also need to do, and what we are doing in reservations is through work like uh, important work that Dr. Carletta Chief at University of Arizona is doing with her Indigifuse uh, group is to address these um, connections between food, energy, and water. And it's important to address. We're just doing it on a scale from a natural resource uh, perspective, um, because that's often, you know, the areas that we need to, I think, approach in order to help improve community economic opportunities through uh, our solar uh, warrior empowerment training program for our middle school travel kids, um, which is, a, we call it the Sweat program, to engage um, the middle, middle school tribal students and understanding the importance of renewable energy in contributing to their overall energy budgets in, within their tribal nations and try to build these future energy technicians, renewable energy technicians, but also they serve as ambassadors to the community of the importance of reducing their dependency on fossil fuels, which are really expensive. Uh, a lot of tribes, like even in Navajo Nation, um, don't have access to good water um, or you know, dependable electricity. So we are trying to do our program sort of a little step at a time to grow it, but also to make sure that we um, do it in a way that always respects Indigenous nations to to, to be self-determining and also to try to help build local economies from a local perspective, from a community, bringing communities together, you know, so... So that these problems that we're facing with climate change that are impacting every sector, if you think about it, if we don't address it at the community level, I'm not sure that anything's going to change.
0: That's really powerful statement and a true statement. And I'm I'm very impressed by, by you and by people who can kind of take it on at that level. Um you know, I am very much a physical scientist, and that's kind of where most of my time goes and my, my thoughts go and my energy in terms of, of that. And I'm aware of so many other dimensions of the problem, obviously, and I'm really impressed by, by people like yourself who can take more of the, the social part of it on. Um, because like you said, it is, it is tricky. It is challenging. There's a lot of inertia that you're up against there. And a lot of of problems that you're up against there yeah so do you think i noticed on the the trees water and people website i was just kind of having a look and i was there's a get involved tab so you know if people want to get involved whether it's a tour a project tab which i guess is probably not possible at the moment but no are there things are there things people can do even in this pandemic situation if they want to start moving towards this sort of you know, local organization, local impact, and perhaps even, you know, with Trees Water and People, if if that's applicable to them, what what can we do during the, during the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic?
1: It is hard. It is difficult. But what we uh, Trees Water and People have done and are continuing to do is to try to shift our focus on trying to reach our uh, sweat our Solar Warrior Empowerment Training Program to virtual. Mm-hmm. Platforms, which I think many people are having to shift to uh, because we're still going to be in this pandemic for the foreseeable year at least until the vaccinations are, are out. Um, but uh, so that's one way. And, and another way is to also, um, uh, we're also trying to reach people with our webinar that we had a five-week seminar webinar series that we held um, in September of this past year on um, you know uh, culture ecology and food systems, uh, empowering tribal culture ecology and food systems. But the way they can get involved personally is to you know to try to be a donor or to volunteer. Once we are out back out in the field, we always have great volunteers that come from Colorado State University or other uh, people in the community who are um, who love what we do and appreciate that and either go out in the field on our planting projects. Um, obviously, that's not possible at the moment because of the the pandemic, because we always honor tribal protocol um, anytime we deliver uh, seedlings. So so I think the best way to get involved is just to, you know, keep in touch with trees watered people on our website. We're going to be updating that soon um, to become a monthly donor, to encourage others to volunteer once we get out in the field to let other people know that this is a good way in which you can help is to work within your own community. So looking at here, our local community of the Uricara Farms, so our local food systems here, they can get involved with that, try, you know, working within their own uh, neighborhoods to develop a neighborhood community garden, So all of these things, I think, are important and to recognize that we we are all connected and that we are our brother's keeper. And um, I think I'll end with the fact that we really need to listen to our indigenous elders and voices who give us their wisdom on how we treat the land, because we believe that all things have a spirit um and if you think about it from a physical scientist point of view you know molecules are in everything are they not and they're actually moving so this is not a new concept for indigenous people these are all sacred things the water the rocks the mountains you know so
0: thank you yeah it's there's not necessarily a contradiction in fact there isn't a contradiction between that scientific worldview that you were just mentioning and a worldview that sees everything as having some shared kind of essence of shared it's, energy. It's, yes, energy. Yeah. It's a shared mm-hmm. energy. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, it, it all is here. It all exists. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's made of the same stuff. It's a, uh, mm-hmm. I like to say that I'm a tornado of molecules because that's what I am. And well, yeah, we're all, we're all tornadoes okay. of molecules mm-hmm. and exactly. as is everything else. And mm-hmm. you know, when you, when you touch a bookshelf or touch a laptop or whatever you're touching mm-hmm you know, it's the whole electrons repelling each other, you know, you're made of the same stuff and Mm. that can get really um, uh, trippy for lack of a better word to think about, to think about the, uh, you know, you're, you are like awareness. And I think sometimes some meditative practices are trying to encourage you to identify with your awareness, to identify with the part of you uh, that is kind of looking out of your eyes, you know, the consciousness part of you and thinking about it that way can, um, can really help you zoom out and can help you um, try to get a sense of that connectedness. And, uh, but to, to do that, you have to kind of be in your body a little bit and listen to your body. I'm, I'm spinning off on a little bit of a tangent. I won't, no, that's I won't go too much further, I, but I,
1: yeah, I, that's not, I, yeah,
0: yeah, so I, I do think it's really nice to recognize that there's no contradiction there that, you know, the scientific worldview says everything's connected There are traditional, many, many traditional cultures, traditional worldviews that say everything's connected. You know, it's it's yeah, been
1: saying that for thousands of years.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: That's that's not a new knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. At all?
0: Are you are you in Fort Collins now?
1: Is that where you? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I've got a silly question because I was just wondering. I'm just for personal curiosity. So I noticed you graduated 2013. Was it? Yes. Yeah. Did you go to the graduation ceremony? Did you did you walk? I did. You did? So it was. Were you the, there? I was there. Yeah, that's the same oh, day. And <laughs> the oh same.
1: Gosh. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> so we I, were at the I, same. Nice. Yeah, congratulations. And you're, um, but you're, and what department were you in?
0: So I was in the atmospheric, and congratulations to oh, you that's as well. That's right, uh, atmospheric
1: sciences. Yeah.
0: Yeah, atmospheric science. Yeah, up on the Foothills campus. Um, yeah. I, I really loved it there. It's really a special place. Lots of positivity and lots of support uh-huh. um, you know doing really good work um, in an environment that's very supportive and tries to be inclusive and you know mm-hmm. people try to build each other up and try yes. to try to help which i really liked and it's the kind of polar opposite from uh i won't name any names but you know there are a lot of schools on uh <laughs> in various places where that's not the attitude where it's a bit more of a sink or swim
1: it is uh you know yeah i've it's, been there mm-hmm.
0: yeah <laughs> Not yeah. in here,
1: not here, but yeah, I've been I've been there in other institutions that I won't mention. Yeah,
0: you, you've seen that. That's right. So being at uh, CSU, and this is not an infomercial for CSU or something, but I'm just saying that was my experience. It was a it was a real relief to go somewhere where that was the ethos of like yeah, let's help each other, let's build each other up. Um, yeah, you- I
1: I didn't have that experience initially, but I did. Um, I I had a great committee um, because. Uh, the famous Dr. Tom Stolgren, who is now retired, was my co-chair uh, along with uh, George Beck. And, and, and I had started in the natural resource ecology, well, actually in the um, natural resources, um, and then uh, went over to uh, the, the College of Ag to finish out because my focus was really on invasive species. Mm-hmm. So I got the opportunity to work you know, with the weed science folks with George Beck and Dr. Cynthia S. Brown, who uh, Sydney Brown is um, still a colleague and a friend here in Fort Collins. And so I, I really applaud the fact and Dr. Kathleen Pickering, I had a great committee who really encouraged me to not just uh, to focus on the science, but also really to bring out the voices of the indigenous peoples uh, that I was working you know, in my tribe and to um, make sure that those voices were heard uh, in my work. And uh, they, they just really were very supportive, particularly Tom and Cindy I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had their support to keep me moving forward and finishing as uh, I'm yeah. sure Ella just kind of, uh, and you um, can, can attest that sometimes you need that encouragement. Oh, yes. um, and <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I got that from them and, and they loved my project. Really, they loved it a lot because it is sort of a different way of approaching science.
0: That's good. I'm really happy to hear that you were well supported there. And Fort Collins is also just, it's a beautiful, it has beautiful, it's a beautiful natural surrounding. You know, there's mountains on one side, plains on the other. And there's something really refreshing about that. And uh,
1: yeah, we we have, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. We have here at, uh, at CSU, we have the Native American Cultural Center. And I have to say that Ty Smith, the director, really, I don't know what I would have done without him either. I mean, he really helped me when I was here um, because mm. there was a time where I did live here. So a couple mm. of different times and he was he was great. And he's actually a board member of Trees mm-hmm. Water and People as well. So I think that you do find support here and you find where you're at is so beautiful and there's so much to do if you're an outdoor person. I you could never get bored here.
0: I I always liked the um just the bike trails through the city. You know, you can yeah, cycle yeah. cycle through the city. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh encounter yeah, the little, husband loves them. Yeah. Oh good. Yeah. You can counter the little uh prairie dogs, you know, little the of the prairie dogs.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yes. Hop out and start barking at you. It's really cute. <laughs> <laughs> it's like adorable. It
1: is. It is. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wish we had some more cycle trails around around Cambridge. Like it's a big cycle town, but uh-huh. the I'm I'm on a village kinda outside of of the city and there's not really a good like way to cycle in without just getting on the big road, which I'm too much of a chicken to do. So I'm mm-hmm. uh <laughs> so I don't I don't cycle in. Um but I used to do that in Fort Collins. I would cycle around a, a good bit and it's uh yeah, it's a really special, really special place. Yes. Um and that's where we were living when we got pregnant with my son, um, who's oh,
1: wonderful.
0: He's now downstairs. And, and he
1: was born here uh, or, or in the UK?
0: He was born in Atlanta because my, oh, uh, yeah. my advisor, yeah. halfway through my PhD, my advisor moved to Atlanta and we all followed him out there. I see, um, okay. And uh, he was born in Atlanta. And then we, we all flew out to my graduation. So at that same graduation ceremony, my son was there.
1: Oh, and, uh,
0: wonderful. He was still he was very young he was still a yeah. baby Aww. and he did he did not like the hat he did not like the you know the cap and gown
1: oh the beanie yeah
0: yeah uh, he's, he saw me in that and just started crying to scream that
1: is, that is so funny <laughs> that is my husband my husband made fun of me about it you know the beanie you know
2: that's what i'm the most sad about like i graduated in absentia so i never got to wear the stupid hat oh
1: i'm so sorry Mm -hmm. hopefully i'll get
2: the chance this
1: year maybe i don't know now where are you at ella are you in the uk as well
2: i am yeah i'm in london
1: oh okay yeah i'm so sorry is there any way that you can maybe they'll let you walk in another ceremony once everybody yeah
2: maybe there is talk of it That would
1: be good yeah just, I mean that's so unfair. I mean I you deserve I mean, it.
2: I mean of, of all the things I think I've yes. gotten off relatively well. I think yes. There are people having much harder problems than I. But I mean I could always yeah. replicate the the ceremony by you know putting a sheet on and swooshing around or something. Right. <laughs> you play but play yeah. the music. Yeah, yeah. Play yeah the music totally.
0: in the background. And
1: <laughs> you just
0: need somebody to announce to like announce you to like introduce you and there, to yeah say exactly. the words. And,
1: and what's the name of that thing that, that, you know, the Tomatron or something like that, that you're on, that you, everybody sees you when you're on that, on the stage. Oh, the big screen, they, the jump, Jumbotron. Like they kinda, have the a screen. Screen. Yes. jump. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But you deserve it. You should really be, oh, I hope you. that you get the For chance. Time. And, and, uh, you know, I think we all can, both of us, all three of us can really empathize with the process of getting the PhD, not being, mm easy um and you know like you said you followed your your uh, advisor um to atlanta and yeah. and it's great that you had did, it sounds like you had great support did you have good support ella
2: oh yeah fantastic I, I that, that means everything yeah,
1: and it really does you cannot put a, you know a value on that you hear how critically important it is to have that support without
2: without a good team behind you it it must be really horrific i know plenty of people who had a real horrible time oh i know i know so grateful for having an advisor who's supportive and encourages the best in you and also tells you not to work too hard
1: (laughs) exactly i love it yeah yeah exactly exactly and that's you need them as like an advocate. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I, I think it was, it was at first a very big jump for me to go from academics to get out of academics. I mean, I, I made, a, a, I made a, a conscious choice to get out of academics. Um, I just really kind of got tired of that dog eat dog kind of you're on your own kind of attitude. And, you know, them wanting me to like develop some product to sell. And I just said I'm not a used car salesman for Indigenous people, so I'm I'm out. And what a great phrase! <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I just no. So you know I think uh, like it or not, you know I'm pretty uh, straightforward person, and but I also stick to my values and morals, and it ha- uh, it's it's unfortunately made me well aware of the fact that I'm probably not as politically correct as I need to be and I need to improve that part and I'm trying I think but being a nonprofit, you know it's it doesn't pay as well as academics and but it's so much more rewarding it's just so much more rewarding so much more worth it (laughs) it is and it's so much more and I can utilize my science to do all of these projects that we're looking at in terms of you know, mapping where these seedlings are and looking at the best possible places to to put them uh, and utilizing climate models. You know, I can still use some of my science background um, and still do research, but also be able to, to have some direct impact on improving lives within Indigenous communities. And that's really... What we should all do. I mean, what have you done for your brother today? You know, how have you improved anyone's life? Well, how have you contributed to making someone's life better? Yeah, having a meaningful impact. Exactly. I and mean, thank you. That's so much better than I said. But.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I like what you both said. And I, I like the emphasis on being kind of specific and saying, have you made somebody's life better today? Right. And, yeah. I, um, the other day I was doing some kind of project management stuff and I'm, I'm not taking any credit for this because this phrase just popped into my head. So I'm sure <laughs> it's just the result of having listened to it, so many wise people. So Same. I was, yeah, I you know. Get it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of was struck by, I was trying to come up with some kind of mission statement or something to just organize my thoughts and to organize my whole you know, efforts. yeah. And this phrase popped into my head, and it was very, very short, very simple. And the phrase is just be good to people. Like, that's yeah. it. That's the only phrase. Yeah. And I thought, well, I could have written something very jargony and like, you know, quantify, improve the. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> fine. Oh, that's fine. That's good stuff to do. But ultimately, that's not the end goal, right? The end yeah. goal is like to make things better for people. And that might just be on a small scale. I mean, you know, for sure. me, maybe that's just like being a good supervisor to my postdocs, right. and you know, being yeah. good, good to my PhD students, and right. um, being good to my family and and right. and friends. And it might just be on that level. But I think no matter what scale you're working on, you know, being good to people, I felt like that's a good a good mission statement that I can try to strive for.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: and in, and that's sort of a you know. Part of the teaching in indigenous communities is learning to respect others and um, to honor the privilege of being here and, and having, uh, for us anyway, a beautiful scenery outside and respecting and honoring and taking care of that, being aware of the fact that we're a part of all of this and therefore, you know, to take care of what's outside essentially cares helps us take care of ourselves yeah, and others.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We're a part of it. It's a part of us. It's all it's, the same thing. It's all it one is, thing.
1: And we should not separate it. You know, there's science behind this too, that looking at, you know, tree shyness, if you, you know, read about this tree shyness crown shyness that mm. happens where trees kind of recognize and are leaving these little bit of gaps so that they don't grow over each other. Yeah. Um, there's also some science behind, you know, trees being able to talk with each other. You the know, wood wide web and, is that? Yes.
2: Someone told me <laughs> about this recently that blew being my able mind. To
1: talk through their, yes, yes, absolutely. Through it's these amazing. microbes and, and sending these signals. And so, you know, I mean, none, none of this is surprising or new again, you know, for our indigenous people. But <laughs> what I'm grateful for is that we're, you know, and what I tried to do also was to to say to the science community is that what I did in my work was do, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, I did the, you know, the plots and looked at, you know, size structure of, of cottonwood, you know, near and far to ceremonial sites. So I did the science kind of fieldwork stuff, but then I did the, re, you know, interviews and the interviews matched what was being said or what I found to hmm. be true. So, that is one way in which you say, "Look, they have knowledge. <laughs> Maybe we should listen."
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So, I'm happy to keep talking. You know, as long as we want, as short as we want. I want to respect your your time as well.
1: Yeah, so, I probably need to go uh, if I can. Um, okay. Yeah, that's fine. If so, you think you have enough, I mean, do you do you forget oh, yeah. about uh, our conversation? I, I thank you. I feel so honored that you all asked me to to speak here and to talk with oh. you it's great to talk to other scientists um i am i do say i am a scientist yep. it's just that um i recognize it through an indigenous lens yeah absolutely i think it's
2: so refreshing it's such an amazing thing to hear from you it's very inspirational to have that i've i've found it fascinating and very oh, thank you yeah thank very you. inspirational to hear the ways that you can merge the two sort of perspectives It's been really hmm. great
1: Yes, Absolutely. there are ways of doing that, and, and uh, it's not impossible. But, so I want
0: to give you an opportunity because we often wrap and up with And thank
1: the... Dr. Catherine Hayhoe for the shout-out. I <laughs> love Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. She's my <laughs> shiro. Yes. Um, How did you meet? Actually, I've never met Catherine. We were scheduled to do a talk together with, uh, with uh, Renee McPherson, who is um, in the South Central Climate Adaptation Science Center as the director. There and um, in Norman, Oklahoma, and so um, we were scheduled to to do a talk together and had a lot of different conversations about our joint panel presentation. And uh, I ended up having to have back surgery, emergency sort of um, thing, and so wasn't able to. But we just kind of kept in touch, and uh, she knew, you know, about my work, and because she had some connections to University of Arizona as well. But she tries to, I think, include, um, in, you know, women and women of color, which is wonderful. I think the more, uh, we, you know, we have representative in the climate change, climate science, um, you know, uh, of voices, uh, the better, um, because, you know, obviously you want to see people who look like you, who oh, sure. represent you uh, talking about these important topics. Um, and, and, and explaining why they're important.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity because we often end with kind of a little lightning round about different things you've learned, if you have time for that. Is that all right, maybe? Sure, go five, ahead. Five, five, 10 minutes, okay. So um, it's a set of questions about just what you've learned. So what's something that you've learned about science? Something that surprised you that you, you didn't know kind of before you started to formally get involved with it?
1: I think you already talked about it, which was the connectedness of, a, of everything. Yeah. Uh, particularly yeah. ecology,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, the connectedness of everything. You know, right. So.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. And what's yes. and it's true, you have already spoken to a lot of these things, so, you know, we can do short answers. I just wanted to give you the opportunity, really, because it's it's common for the show. So, you know, what's something you've learned about academia, kind of navigating academia? Now that you, I mean, you've left it, but you learned a lot about navigating it already. <laughs> Yeah. Uh,
1: Navigating academia. Uh, I've had some unfortunate experiences and I've had some wonderful uplifting experiences. And I think what you have to do is recognize that you need to get to know the people that you're going to want to work with, get to know their work, but also get to know who they are from other students who have worked with them Mm -hmm. uh, so that you can make sure that you're matched well in that department and in that and particularly with that advisor or co-advisors. Um, so that you know that you're going to have the support you need, recognizing what support you do need. Sometimes some students are are fine working in and of themselves, just doing it and, and going through it and getting done because they're already in a job or you know that kind of thing. But uh, recognizing that there's always more to learn and that you can learn from working with other disciplines and to to always respect others and allow, Uh, in academia, one of my advisors always said that in academia, everyone has a voice. And I think that that's important. I don't know that that's necessarily always true without consequence. So that, like, if you speak up about a particular professor, um, it might not go well for you, um, Mm. given the tenure track system, the tenure system, (laughs) the way it's built in. Uh, Mm. So, you know, I, I do think that it's important to Make sure your family is supportive of your endeavors because uh, even a master's, any any kind of academia, whether you're going through your bachelor's, your master's, or your PhD, you really do need to have support at home. You have to have family support, friends to make sure that you have an outlet that you know allows you to separate yourself every now and then because uh, it can become... Sort of all consuming, and uh, that may not necessarily yeah, be the healthy thing. <laughs> yeah, so you know, hobbies are good, and you know, get interested in other things. Uh, for me, I love cooking and baking, that's my escape. Have you been doing are a there, lot of that? Yeah, yeah, well, until I broke my foot, all oh, right, two days after Christmas. But, oh, yeah, I'll get back to it, I think, <laughs> eventually. You broke your foot. Oh, I'm sorry, that sounds yeah, that was. Yeah, well, what a way to end 2020, right? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Just on the way out, 2020, On the sends way you, out of
1: 2020, <laughs> having surgery on the 7th, and yeah.
0: So, oh my gosh, you know. is it recovering okay now? Here he It's, get, it's it now? getting
1: better. Yeah, I'm still wearing the boot, and I mm. you know, had the stitches removed. I have a plate and six screws in my foot. So, Right. Um, got another month to wear this fashionable, not so fashionable boot, but. Oh my gosh, and I, and I do have some pain, you know, uh, still uh, experiencing. Mm. It's getting much better. Thank oh, you good. for asking. Okay. Yeah, that was that was wickedly weird and, and just frustrating. Yeah, but it but it's like always it. good to have, you know, an outlet. Um, whether you're running and you know, um, I knew Lydia, Dr. Lydia Jennings from U- University of Arizona, who does one of the indigenous few indigenous women doing soils, um, and I applaud her. She does a lot of running, um, and so she was always filling her Twitter with her running in the the desert. And, Hmm. you know, whether that's, you know, like with you, riding bikes and trails and, you know, or if it's, you know, hiking or, um, you know, whatever it is that you can find as an outlet Hmm. is going to help you get through it and come out on the other side healthier than... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you didn't have some kind of outlet um, because I frankly did have trouble after I finished. I had, it, it, it was, it was a change, you know, it was difficult. Um, and I think it was because I was a little older. I was a non-traditional student trying to find my way in academia and trying to figure out what, where do I fit in? You know, I did this interdisciplinary work and where do I fit? You know, I did this, you know, stuff with, um, the first chapter I did was on um, land use change policies and uh, failed American Indian land policies and and land vegetation change through time. And then a uh, climate, you know, data climate modeling, use a climate modeling tool to determine, you know, where is, you know, Russian olive gonna spread and how it's displacing cottonwoods. And then my last one was an ethnobotany and economic botany approach to an and objective. So subjective and objective data analysis from interviewing and community surveys. So it's like, okay, let's see, am I a scientist? Let's see. I have an <laughs> anthropology degree, but, you know, I've done field work. But then, you know, so what department wants me? Mm-hmm. That yeah. I had a very right. hard time with. Very, things are very, you know, really different now than they were when I graduated even. They've changed drastically, I think, to the better, I think, in mm. academia where you have departments that are recognizing the importance of hiring, you know, uh, faculty of color <laughs> and um, and including indigenous voices in their, their, you know, conversations they have with their students, whether it's bringing them on for doing, a, you know, a, an hour talk about work. So I, I think it is changing. It's getting better. And science is becoming better at accepting these other knowledges as equally important.
0: Yeah. Well, that, you said that you've got to go, so I want to respect that and let you, let you oh, go. Oh, sorry. No, I, no. I just
1: really got off on a tangent, didn't I? No, no, it's good.
0: No, <laughs> no, it's good. I, I like it. Because no, you were I...
1: like wanting to do a rapid fire. What you learn? <laughs> uh, science science yeah. is, is always building knowledge. Don't never forget you don't know it all. Oh, yeah. And there's That's... no way to know it all, and there's never going to be answers to everything. So just, and and I think anybody in academia already has a love of learning. So it's a yeah. lifelong learning, love of lifelong learning. And I don't think it ever leaves you. Um, mm. And so mm-hmm. if that's you, you're going to do great. Getting it, finishing your PhD, you're going to finish probably. Um, <laughs> so support and family and, you know, and and the love of lifelong learning and recognizing yeah. you don't know it all. <laughs> and that's admitting right. you don't know it all.
0: Yes, that's very important. Yeah, PhD is more about sticking to something. It's more about that determination. Yeah, it is, not, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's kind of being stubborn, you know. It's, yes. I have a stubborn streak. And right. exercise and perseverance. It is, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Uh, I had a moment where I thought I wanted to, to quit. And honest to God, I, I had this guy who I thought was sort of helping me, support me, and he had already finished a PhD. And, and I, I was talking to him, and he said, well, you know, Val, not everybody is – not everybody is fit for a PhD, yeah. and I was so pissed off at that <laughs> comment. finished it despite you. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I did. I just said, <laughs> "Oh hell no! Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: we're not having that."
1: <laughs> no, we're not having that. I'm it's finishing amazing. this PhD you know i'm just as good as you are um i can finish a phd and i'll yeah. show you and
0: then i'm going to come to your house and i'm going to put it i'm going to put it on your wall is what i'm going to do i'm going to frame it and put it on your wall just so you look at have to look at
1: it you know i've never been able to pay off my uh my i haven't paid off my uh fees over here at CSU, so i don't even have my diploma yet Oh it's right! So bad, isn't it? I need to do that. So
0: it's a weird like, thing to hold hostage because, like, you've earned it, and like I know it's know? like
1: really come on, you know. <laughs> That's the thing, you know. <laughs> I so yeah. It, so it, it's been hard because I've been poor. Mm. Um, you know, while finishing up, my husband he retired in 2017 uh, yeah. from the tribal college. He was actually the dean of administration there for 11 mm. years. Okay, uh, and so um he's retired and now it's my turn to work and um and i love where i'm at i i do we miss our family desperately because of covid it's been very hard we've lost five family members in december oh wow! Well. um i can't see our kids and our grandkids and so it's been depressing but i think given the last week or so or last few days there's a little bit of sun shining yeah. you know <laughs> and i um and uh, I think uh, things are going to get better, and I think we're going to get beyond this. I think there's just yeah. no other way to view, to think about this thing until, you know, you have to start, we had to start thinking outside the box immediately when this started to happen and lockdowns went mm-hmm. down because, and that's how I came up with, we need to send money to Pine Ridge, to our partner, who is Patricia Hammond, who runs Rebel Earth Farms. Uh, and a nonprofit called Chonwick monkey. We need to send her money so she can go to Sam's in rapid city and get bulk food and bring Mm. it back to the reservation and deliver it. And so that's how we started our food sovereignty support. Hmm. It's just, Hmm. uh, we need to get food and water and medicine to these people because it's, it was locked down. So that's how it starts. How can I help these people? You know, they, they're hungry, they need food, they need access to water because a lot of them don't have access to good quality water and mm. medicines, you know, for people who are disabled, who are youth, who are um, elderly, mm. you know, these you are doing? the people that are vulnerable that you need to try to focus on. And that's how it started thank yeah. you, this year on COVID, you know, God.
0: I love it. You're doing real stuff. I'm over here making plots with like lines, you know, (laughs) this number, when this number goes up, this other number does this, you know, like, (laughs) and you're like helping get people fed and get the medicine. That's real. That's real stuff. It's important.
1: (laughs) It's Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to do it. I work with great people. We have a great team. mm. We're small, but, um, but we're all sort of the same passion and vision and, uh, so yeah. I'm very fortunate to have the job on my dreams.
0: Oh, that's amazing. That's such yeah. a, that's so nice to hear. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Anything else you wanted to chat about Ella to touch
2: on? No, I think we've, we've gone through the whole range. <laughs> it's been great. I've loved it. Yeah. And, I may, and maybe been some. May be more than you wanted
1: to hear. No, no not no, at all. No, no. What it, a
2: Friday it, evening. It's... I feel like we've just scratched the surface.
1: Just, so uh, I, I really wish you guys all the best, and I hope we get mm. to meet in person someday. I'd love to come to Europe and, and to London, mm. and well, so you can, yes, I'd love, love to visit.
0: <laughs> and, oh, that would uh, be
1: cool. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great. My husband is actually um, anxious to do some traveling too once we are allowed to do that and it's safe to do so. But um, and you're always welcome here in Fort Collins, and mm. love to take you up and show you our beautiful. Bighorn Mountains um, and Wolf mm-hmm. Mountains. <laughs> we have three mountain ranges on the reservation: the Wolf, uh, the Wolf Mountains, and and uh, the Bighorns, and and our prior Mountains. So, so aho kashila. Um, I appreciate it very much. Thank, Thank you so much. much.
0: Yeah,
2: it's Thank been you. incredible.
0: Yes, Thanks. this has been so nice. Thank you so much. It's been a, a really excellent conversation. It's been so nice to meet you virtually, and uh, so nice to learn from you. I really like learning from. Um, from people like yourself and uh-huh. yeah thank you for your time thank and your you. presence
1: thank you all. and again congratulations oh i hope you get to walk thanks very and, much um, i hope to <laughs> my best to you and your family dan thank you
2: and to you oh yeah and to uh, you as well i hope hope thank your you. foot gets better soon huh. thank you <laughs> <laughs> take care yeah bye. bye
0: there you have it our conversation with dr valerie small Thanks again to Dr. Small for joining us. You can find out more about Dr. Small's work by visiting treeswaterpeople.org and there you can read about getting involved, making donations. If you click through the link there on that page, you can follow them on Twitter. That's uh, how you get access to that. You can find Valerie on Twitter at drsmallv. All, you know, one word, no underscores or anything like that. All right, good. So I'm going to read some credits now. Here we go. Climate Scientists is produced by Danny Jones, Ella Gilbert, and Caitlin Naughton. Editing by Sean Williams Page, audio engineering consultant Lillian Blair. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Climate SciPod. And a big thanks to Chelsea Baker for support on Patreon. You can find us there on Patreon uh, under Climate SciPod as well. Okay, there we go. I just want to take a minute to express some gratitude for all of the people who helped me make this podcast possible. Uh, I really, really appreciate having so many great people to work with. And I appreciate having so many great listeners. Thanks for listening, downloading, tuning in, however you're accessing this. I really appreciate your support and your listening. So take care of yourselves. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.